Hello, everyone. This is John Allen, the editor of Crux. Welcome to Last Week in the Church, the show rigorously and faithfully devoted to bringing you news about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know because it's already happened. Uh, you will notice today uh, I am rocking uh, under my jacket uh, my uh, Roma jersey. Roma is one of two professional soccer clubs here in Rome. The other is Lazio. Uh, it's like New York with the Yankees and the Mets. By the way, they played a weekend series. Mets won two out of three. Last night, Roma played one of the most remarkable games uh, I've ever seen in my life. And I will tell you, I watch a lot of sports. I mean, I don't really know who's watching right now exactly, but I will tell you, uh, I believe I watch more sports than you do, whoever you are. And this was easily on the top five list of the most incredible games I've ever seen. Rome ended up winning 2-1 uh, over a team called Sassuolo uh, in an absolutely crazy, dramatic, thrills, spills, chills uh, kind of fashion. If you want to know what Romans are actually talking about today, I guarantee you it has nothing to do with the Vatican and it has everything to do with last night's game. Proof of the point, my cab driver uh, on the way over here uh, was uh, actually a Lazio fan. Even he uh, had watched the Roma game last night. Even he had to admit it was one of the most incredible things he'd ever seen. Uh, if you want to know, by the way, what the real division in the Vatican is, uh, it's not progressives v. conservatives. It's not reformers versus the old guard. Uh, it's not pro and anti-Francis camps. Popes, reforms, ideologies, these things come and go. The real division in the Vatican is between the Laziali and the Romanisti, uh, that is, Lazio fans and Roma fans. I'm a Roma fan. I'm telling you, I am a happy man today. Uh, and if I seem a little scattered or, or unfocused, it's simply because I'm not really sure my heart is out of my mouth uh, from the ending of last night's game. Uh, but you know, all this is a reminder that, you know, we often think of the Vatican in isolation as if you know, it's this thing over here that has no relationship to the rest of the world, really. Uh, but the truth of it is, uh, the Vatican is located in a specific place and in a specific culture. It's located in Rome. And I guarantee you, 95% of, of the people in the Vatican payroll today, this is what they're talking about, too. So, Forza Roma, but let's move on. <laughs> we have a lot to cover in today's show uh, in terms of recent news on the Vatican beat. Uh, we begin with a look back at the 9-11 uh, anniversary and the Vatican's role in the events subsequent to 9-11. Then, uh, the Pope is on the road again. Pope Francis today is in Slovakia, having wrapped up a seven-hour stop in Hungary yesterday. We've got a landmark abortion ruling in Mexico. Uh, then we've got of popes and populists, Italy's most famous right-wing nationalist, anti-immigrant populist comes calling in the Vatican and its reverberations. And finally, a new rift with Jews. Pope Francis gets into hot water for his comments on the Torah. All that is waiting for us uh, after this, so please stick around. All right, we begin this week with a look back at 9-11, the 20th anniversary. Now, of course, 9-11 is one of those milestone events in world history that just completely rewrote uh, the history of our time. 
I mean, I'm old enough to remember what it used to be like to board airplanes before 9-11. We're in a different world uh, today. 9-11 left not just Americans, but the whole world feeling less safe, more vulnerable, more scared. And of course, the Vatican was as much of a, a participant uh, in those dynamics as anyone else. But uh, the, 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 and the Vatican did not mark the 9-11 anniversary in any particular way. Of course, this 9-11 anniversary is unique becomes, because it comes uh, hard on the heels of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, the war in Afghanistan, upon which the United States is estimated to have lavished more than $2 trillion over the course of the last 20 years, was, of course, one of the two great military campaigns to ensue from the terrorist attacks uh, uh, on that date. Uh, Afghanistan, the other, of course, was Iraq. Uh, in both cases, U.S.-led interventions. In the first case, an intervention that broadly enjoyed overwhelming global support, uh, at least at the beginning. The other, much less so, uh, far more controversial at the time. Uh, what is worth remembering, perhaps, on this anniversary uh, is that there really was only one major Western institution that was critical of both, and not simply in the aftermath, but at the time. And it was the Vatican under St. John Paul II. In the run-up to the Afghanistan war, the invasion in Afghanistan that followed 9-11, John Paul II, nine days after 9-11, visited the nation of Kazakhstan, uh, which is in the region. While there, he publicly said that he prayed with all his heart that the world would remain in peace, seen as a clear anti-war gesture. His aides put out statements saying that it is legitimate to use force to protect uh, a country from terrorism, but to do so, you can't, attack, you can't attack an entire nation. You have to pursue the terrorists themselves uh, and hold them accountable. In other words, it has to be a police, not a military action. Uh, a couple months later, as the Afghanistan campaign was in full flower, John Paul issued his message for the World Day of Peace in which he said that no strike against terrorism will ever be successful if it relies entirely on military measures. It also has to address the resentments, the grievances there, that are at the root uh, of much terrorist action. And so it, it was clearly a yellow light at best to Afghanistan. Uh, on Iraq, it was a clear red light. Uh, John Paul and his team were opposed from the very beginning. Uh, John Paul even dispatched an envoy, former uh, am Vatican ambassador to the United States, Cardinal Pio Laghi. Uh, to the Bush White House to try to persuade them to stand down. Of course, in the end, it wasn't successful. Now, I mention all of this because often when it comes to Vatican diplomacy, uh, you know, it, it gets written off as a kind of peacenik, pie-in-the-sky operation. But the truth of it is, what 20 years of experience since 9-11 tell us, that if anyone saw clearly what the consequences of these military interventions would be. It wasn't the United States, it wasn't most Western powers, but it was the Vatican. And that might be an invitation. The next time the Vatican tries to ring the bell uh, in terms of world attention, warning 
that way madness lies, maybe it's worth giving a listen. Uh, all right, Pope Francis on the road. Uh, Pope Francis today uh, is in Slovakia uh, for a two and a half day state visit. He'll be there all day today, all day tomorrow, and then come back to Rome on Wednesday. Uh, this comes on the heels of a seven hour stop in Hungary to celebrate the closing mass of an International Eucharistic Congress being held in Budapest. Now, uh, between the two stops, that is Hungary and Slovakia, news interest was concentrated largely on Hungary because in Hungary, Pope Francis had to have a tete-a-tete uh, with one of the European political leaders today, that, to be quite honest, with whom he has the least in common. That's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, uh, of Hungary, who is a hard-right, nationalist, anti-immigrant, uh, and some would say authoritarian leader. Uh, and of course, these are all things Pope Francis legendarily doesn't like. Uh, and so there was a lot of speculation in the run-up to all this that there might be fireworks. Now, when Pope Francis and Orban actually had a brief encounter on Sunday, I mean, it was all sweetness and light. And that's what always happens in these situations. I mean, the prime minister or president of a country welcoming the pope doesn't want to get into a fight with the pope. He wants everything to go well. Popes don't want to embarrass their hosts. So everybody kind of papers over their differences, right, and, and makes it look good. However, Pope Francis, even though he was only in the country seven hours, didn't leave without getting a couple jabs in. At his Angelus address on Sunday after the mass, uh, he complimented Hungary for its defense of Christian identity. That is part, it's a cornerstone of Orban's rhetoric, that he's defending the Christian roots of Hungary. But Francis went on to say that the cross doesn't just call us to defend our identity. Uh, it also calls us to be open to the other, especially the other who is suffering, who is lost, who is hurt. In context, this was seen as a clear shot across the bow uh, against Orban's anti-immigrant policy. And, you know, we'll see uh, what the aftermath of the trip may be in terms of where the Hungarian church goes. Uh, in Slovakia, he's cheek by jowl with a regime he finds much more congenial. Uh, the president of Slovakia is somebody he likes. She is pro-immigrant, she's pro-environment, anti-climate change, pro-social justice, the kind of center-left leader with whom Francis has a basic kismet. And the expectation there is that it will be a much more congenial stop. Uh, Francis is also going to meet with representatives of the Roma community in Europe that is popularly known as gypsies, uh, who are often mistreated. Uh, Slovakia is a country that doesn't normally get much love. Uh, it's kind of the periphery. And the Romas in Europe are kind of the periphery. So Slovakia is a trip right up the Pope's wheelhouse. And expectations are uh, that it's going to be a kind of vintage Francis voyage. Uh, all right, we shift gears from Europe to the New World. In Mexico last week, there was a stunning, and landmark ruling from the country's Supreme Court. Uh, it came uh, in a case from rural northern Mexico in which one of the Mexican states had adopted a law that basically banned abortion in almost every instance. 
Now, it was no surprise that the Supreme Court took up the case and no surprise that it struck down that law. What was more surprising uh, was what the Supreme Court appended to its ruling, which was a finding that virtually any ban on abortion is a violation of the Mexican Constitution. Now, while that doesn't have the effect of immediately legalizing abortion in Mexico, it does have the, the effect of basically decriminalizing it. Uh, because Supreme Court rulings in Mexico, like in the United States, are binding on lower courts. Lower courts are now bound to find that anyone who suffered criminal sanctions because they participated in an abortion, whether it's the woman having the abortion or the doctor who performed it, the nurses who assisted in it, the anesthesiologist, uh, the clerk who processed the payments, whoever, uh, anybody uh, who is faced with criminal sanctions essentially has to be acquitted because those sanctions violate the national constitution. Uh, now, uh, this stunning ruling uh, generated immediate reaction from the Mexican bishops who, as you might expect, protested vociferously. Uh, it also generated strong reaction from U.S. bishops, especially those bishops on the border, who worry that this ruling may have consequences for their own backyards. And, and let, uh, let us remember that Mexico is the second most populous Catholic nation in the world after Brazil. I mean, Mexico's, like, what, what they all say about it in the Vatican is Mexico sempre fedele, uh, Mexico always faithful. Uh, it's considered a bedrock uh, of Catholicism in Latin America and all across the world. I mean, if all the Mexican missionaries in the U.S. had to go home tomorrow, what, a quarter of parishes in the United States would have to go, if not shut out the lights, they would have to go on a reduced you know, schedule because they would be hurting. Uh, and, and look, there is a fervor in Mexico about their Catholic identity and, and particularly about their allegiance to the Pope. Remember, there was an anti-clerical revolution in, in Mexico. Many Mexican Catholics have grandparents uh, who suffered or died uh, for their fidelity to the Pope uh, and to the church. I mean, I, you know, I've been on papal trips to Mexico. I, I, was, I was on John Paul's last trip to Mexico. And the Mexicans have a custom that when the Pope is leaving the country in his helicopter, he, he will do this, or in his plane, he, he will do this swing around Mexico City. And all of the Mexicans go up to the rooftops with mirrors so they can reflect light back to the papal helicopter or plane. It literally is like a thousand points of light. It's like the entire city is shimmering. I mean, it is breathtaking. You've never seen anything like it. And I, it is a symbol to the Mexicans uh, of their attachment to the faith. So this trauma in Mexico, uh, this, this new uh, rift uh, in terms of abortion policy is not just going to affect the Mexicans. Uh, it will affect the global church. Uh, and therefore, it is eminently worthy of our attention. Uh, all right, of popes and populists. Uh, we already talked about Viktor Orban in this show, but perhaps even more notorious, uh, even more, I don't know, celebrated uh, than Orban, is an Italian populist politician by the name of Matteo Salvini. 
Now, Salvini is the head of a political party here known as La Lega, uh, or the League. Uh, it used to be called uh, the Northern League, uh, but that's back when the party's main issue was Northern Italy seceding from the rest of the country. Uh, when Salvini took over, he realized that probably wasn't a recipe for getting many votes in the center and south of the country. Uh, so he kind of rebranded the whole thing, uh, made it the League instead of the Northern League, and made their signature issue immigration, not secession. Uh, now, immigration is an issue with national appeal in Italy like everywhere else. Uh, and so Salvini has made a career out of it for himself, uh, out of running on a largely anti-immigrant platform. Right now, uh, he is facing a criminal trial in Sicily for something that happened while he was the Interior Ministry, Minister of Italy in 2019. He denied uh, a ship run by an NGO called Open Arms permission to dock in Sicily, which meant that some 300 migrants and refugees had to spend weeks on the open seas. Uh, many of them got sick. Some of them actually died because they jumped overboard in a desperate effort to swim to shore. He's now being charged with kidnapping uh, as a violation of international law, so he's trying to fight that off. At the same time, Salvini is also a cultural conservative. He likes to bill himself as a kind of fervent traditionalist Catholic, uh, even though he is twice divorced and thrice married, and by his own admission, only goes to church for weddings and baptisms. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he likes to be photographed carrying a Bible around and brandishing his rosary of the Madonna of Metagorgia. And he's always been hot for being legitimized by the Vatican. Yet, lo these many years uh, that he's been active in political life, he has never been given a Vatican meeting until this past week, when British Archbishop Paul Gallagher, who is the Vatican's Secretary for Relations with States, basically in charge of its diplomatic operation, sat down with Salvini ostensibly to address the situation in Afghanistan and Italy's efforts to resettle Afghan refugees, uh, but billed by Salvini as a much more wide-ranging conversation. Now, you know, what all this calls to mind uh, is a basic truth about Vatican diplomacy, which drives some people crazy. But you know what? Complaining about it is like complaining about winter. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, it's just a fact of life, which is, Vatican diplomats will talk to anyone. The operating principle of Vatican diplomacy uh, is that it's always better to be in conversation than not to be. And even when people criticize, oh no, you're legitimizing something that's morally reprehensible. You're, you know, you're giving legs to, to people who are hostile to you. Why are you doing all of that? Vatican diplomats will answer that it's better to have some relationship than no relationship, and perhaps especially with people who don't like you. Now, as I say, you can like that, you can applaud it, you can rue it, you can lament it. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's just how they roll, uh, and the Salvini meeting is the lating, latest confirmation of it. Finally, the Pope and Jews. So Pope Francis, from the beginning, uh, has been a pope of interfaith dialogue. He's tried to reach out to all the major world religions, including Jews. It's well known that one of his best friends in Buenos Aires was a Jewish rabbi, Abraham Skorka, with whom 
he did a book uh, while he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Since becoming Pope, he's reached out to Jews in various ways. However, the Catholic-Jewish relationship is ever a sensitive one, and we are living through a new cycle of heartache uh, in that relationship. All this related to some comments Pope Francis made on August 11th during his general audience uh, when he referred to the Jewish Torah and, and saying that the Torah does not give life, life has to be found in Jesus Christ, and that that was the experience of the early Christian church. Uh, now that has ticked off many Jewish leaders, uh, influential rabbis in Israel, in the United States, and in Italy have all complained uh, that this was a diss to the Jewish Torah and that it revives the teaching of contempt, which historically fueled Christian anti-Semitism and helped pave the way for the Holocaust. Uh, now, Pope Francis's top official for relations with Jews, Swiss Cardinal Kurt Koch, uh, has tried to put the fires out. He sent letters to the rabbis who complained, saying, look, Pope Francis was not talking about contemporary Judaism. He was not talking about the Torah today. He was talking about the situation of St. Paul uh, in the early Christian church, and he meant no disrespect. And obviously, he has this great track record uh, of outreach to Judaism. Remains to be seen whether the, those Jewish leaders are going to buy it, <laughs> but it is a reminder uh, that popes, like ordinary pastors everywhere, you know, often face this dilemma of how do you talk about Judaism with the religion with which Christianity has this genetic bond? I mean, do you, do you use the language uh, of the early church, which is traditional Christian language, but which also rubs many Jews today the wrong way? Or do you try to be more sensitive at the expense of maybe, you know, avoiding some of the hard phraseology and hard rhetoric of early Christianity. Uh, it, it's, it's a standing dilemma. Francis is hardly the first pope to face it, but he is the pope today who has to deal with its aftermath. All right, that's our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Uh, we will be here next Monday. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe. Stay healthy, and I will leave you with this thought. Forza Roma! Huh? Sempre Magica. And I promise you, they were last night. See you soon.